Well, I would ask you to please take your copy of God's Word and turn to John chapter 13. John chapter 13. And if you don't have a Bible, there are a lot of them uh, in and around the seats in front of you. So just take one of those copies. It's probably about three-fourths of the way through, if you're not familiar with where it is, about three-fourths of the way into Scripture. John chapter 13. And we're continuing our series this morning in John chapter 13 through 16, Jesus's farewell or mission discourse. And the title of the series is Trinity, Mission, and Me, How the Family of the Triune God Overflows with His Love, Light, and Life-Giving Work in a World That Hates Him. And the title of this morning's sermon, as you see, is Life-Giving Glory in Jesus' New Old Commandment. So let me read verses 31 to 38, and then I'll lead us in prayer. Let's hear the unchanging word of our unchanging God. So I'll start in verse 31 of chapter 13. When he, Judas, had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. And this is the eternal word of God. Let me lead us in prayer again. Our holy Father in heaven, much of this text is perhaps familiar to many of us. But we know that the wealth and the glory and the life of these truths are infinitely beautiful and inexhaustible and transforming. So we pray you would help us now. Please pour out your Holy Spirit now to open our eyes and hearts that we might see and receive the unsearchable riches of your life-giving glory in Jesus Christ. Father, please fill us to the measure of all of your fullness that we might bear much lasting fruit for your glory in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, I want to start by telling you many years ago when Lori and I were just getting to know each other, it was before we were married, we went to an amusement park with some friends. And a thunderstorm developed as the day went on, and at night we went on a ride called the Spindle Top. 
Some of you maybe are familiar with it. It's a big round cylinder that you get into through a door. And about 30 people stand against the wall and the whole thing begins to spin. First slowly, but then faster and faster and faster. And of course, the force of the spinning presses you against the wall in such a fashion that it's hard to move any part of your body. And lights are flashing just to add to the pleasure of the experience. And then suddenly, without warning, the floor drops out, leaving you suspended against the wall. And for us, on that particular night, because of the storm, it just so happened that a big boom of thunder with lightning happened just as the bottom dropped out. It was absolutely terrifying. It was a totally disorienting experience. But of course, it was a thrill ride. And it was kind of fun, and we knew that it would be okay. And besides that... Lori was kind of scared, so I hugged her, and then we decided to get married. And uh, everything turned out just fine. So we're grateful. Well, I tell that story because in a far greater and much more significant way, on the night leading up to Jesus' crucifixion, His disciples were in the midst of a real-life, totally disorienting experience. And our text this morning unfolds amid what had already been a dark, troubling, and scary time for these men. In the preceding context of verses 1 to 30 in chapter 13, we've learned of Jesus doing two surprising things as he and his own are gathered in an upstairs room of a home in Jerusalem. First, he, their Lord and teacher, took the surprising role of a common slave and he washed their feet. And then second of all, he spoke of a betrayer among them and how perplexed and how confused they must have been when Judas Iscariot departed from them into the night. Now, leading up to that context, we know from things that were told earlier in chapters 11 and 12 that the disciples understood that the envious, raging hatred of the religious leaders in Jerusalem, uh, they understood that hatred that those men had for Jesus. And they knew that those hypocrites wanted to kill him and presumably kill them as well. So earlier in chapter 11, when Jesus decides that they're going to go back to the area around Jerusalem, these guys basically see it as a death threat or a death sentence. And on top of that, in chapter 12, Jesus had been talking about his burial and about not always being with them. He had talked about being glorified and about death and about losing life. And so these things are swirling around and we're also told in chapter 12 that they observed Jesus being troubled and distressed in his own soul and saying things like his hour had come and that he knew he would not be saved from this hour that his father had destined for him. 
And then they heard him pray to his father and pray for his father to glorify his name. And then interestingly, we're told in verses 28 and 29 of chapter 12 that after Jesus prayed, they heard a voice from heaven that boomed like thunder saying, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. Now, the reason I share all of that is because by the time we get to verse 31 in chapter 13, in the middle of this cold, foreboding night, we can only imagine what these men must have been thinking and feeling. Stressed, confused, perplexed, and terrified. No doubt nervous and uneasy, their heads and their hearts must have been spinning like that spindle top ride. Their anxious thoughts multiplying like branches on a giant tree. As I've thought about what they must have been experiencing, it kind of seems to me that I think of their experience as similar to what it must have been like on D-Day in World War II. For those brave young men in their landing craft as they approached the beaches of Normandy. What's going to happen next? What's coming next? Am I going to die? It's probably what these men were thinking and how troubled they must have been. And so then with what Jesus begins to say in verse 31. And notice the emphasis there just a little bit into the verse now. Now. Now, they must have felt like the bottom had dropped out. And like a mirage, all hope vanished. Now friends, I think all of us understand real life, crushing, totally disorienting experiences, don't we? The death of a loved one, a financial setback, problems in relationships, The loss of a job, failing a test in class or failing the whole class, a life-changing diagnosis, a rebellious family member. Sometimes it's just the grind of day-to-day life, isn't it, that can be so totally disorienting. And even having deep and good desires that we might have that go unmet, like the longing to be married or the longing to have a child or whatever it may be. And in such experiences, we just want the ride to end, don't we? And for things to get back to normal. But God has other plans. He has other plans. And we often wrestle with deep questions. Like, God, what are you doing in all of this? And why is this happening? Well, I think our text today directly answers those kinds of questions we can easily wrestle with. And here's the answer that we're going to see as we move through verses 31 to 38. Here's the main truth. This is the big idea. It's this. In love, Jesus, the good shepherd, troubles his people to do them good. In love, Jesus, the good shepherd, troubles his people to do them good. And let me just personalize it. In love, Jesus, the good shepherd, troubles you to do you good. He troubles you to do you good. Now, implicit to this, as we're going to see, is the reality 
that the Lord Jesus Christ is in charge. He's in total command. He is the good shepherd king, which is made reference to back in chapter 10 when Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. And usually when scripture is speaking of God or Jesus in terms of shepherd, it's in that context of of a shepherd king, the one who is in absolute authority. He's in command and he rules his flock with holy love. And I would just remind you that the entirety of this mission discourse, chapters 13 through 16, is governed by the statement that we find in verse 1 that Jesus loved his own to the end. What we find in all of these chapters and everything that really extends beyond this to the cross and the resurrection and and on is Jesus loving his own to the very end. And so everything that we see Jesus doing and saying here flows from his holy love for his own. And he loves his own. And because he does, he will trouble us to do us good. So what we find then in verses 31 to 38 are three ways that Jesus troubles us to do us good. Three ways he does us good in the trouble he ordains for us. And that's what we're going to look at, these three ways. Here's the first one. Jesus troubles you to do you good by pointing you to see and trust God's life-giving glory. He troubles you to do you good by pointing you to see and trust God's life-giving glory. Look at verse 31. And I'll read uh, verses 31 and 32. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Do you get the sense that God's glory in Jesus and is uppermost in his mind in what he's about to face at the cross? Now the now that Jesus speaks of there, now is the Son of Man glorified. It speaks of the time of His suffering and His shame on the cross. Jesus, of course, knows that His entire life has been moving toward this hour. And with the departure of Judas to literally pull the trigger on betraying Him, As Judas had left, as we're told in verse 30, Jesus declares the time is now. Now, of course, what's amazing is that he speaks of this time, the time of his darkest, most intense, unimaginable suffering as the time for him to be glorified and God the Father ultimately to be glorified in him. So Jesus knows that in his crucifixion and his resurrection and exaltation to follow, God will be most fully pouring out the wonders and the riches and the life-giving power of his eternal glory. God will be most radiantly displaying his majestic living glory in the fullness of all that he is. His sovereignty, His authority, His wisdom, His power, His righteousness, His justice, His love, and His mercy, and His grace, and His truth, and all that He is will be on full display at the cross. 
And so Jesus knows that his father designed for him to die as a substitute. To suffer the father's judgment in, uh, his judgment of wrath in death. To bring life and salvation to all who would repent and believe on him. And so as his hour has come, Jesus sees and he trusts God's life-giving glory that will be displayed in his sufferings. And he wants, with what he says in verses 31 and 32, he wants his disciples, he wants us to see and trust this life-giving glory as well. And so he's doing his disciples good by what he's saying this. He's, he's holding before them a vision of God's life-giving glory that is going to be poured out at the cross. And among other things, it reminds us that what happened at the cross was not an accident. It wasn't plan B. It was the Father's design from before the foundation of the world as the means of displaying the fullness of His life-giving glory. We can think of what took place at the cross as really the highest mountain peak, if you will, in the vast mountain range of God's displayed glory. I think of it kind of like in the world of sports, you know, we see highlight reels of great plays and there's always a number one greatest play. Well, God's highlight reel, if you will, is filled with countless great works that he has done. Great works of creation, great works of providence, but his indisputable, unchanging, number one greatest work is the work of redemption that he accomplished when Jesus, his eternal son, poured out his precious blood on the cross to bring eternal life, to bring salvation to helpless sinners like you and me who would trust him. And by the way, if you've never turned to Jesus Christ in faith, repented from your sin and looked to Him and Him alone as the means by which you can be forgiven and reconciled to God and, and brought into the blessings of eternal life and salvation through faith in Christ, this is why you need Him. Because if you don't turn to Him, your sins are on you and God's judgment is on you. This is why Peter would proclaim in Acts chapter 4 that there is salvation in no one else. For there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This is why I call this life-giving glory. Because the glory of God displayed in the redemption He accomplished in and through Christ's blood brings life, eternal life, salvation to all who would trust Christ. Well, we see in the life of Jesus that zeal for and trust in God's life-giving glory consumed Jesus as he moved closer and closer to the cross. Some days earlier, in the beginning of chapter, chapter 11, in verse 4, when Jesus was about to raise his friend Lazarus from the dead, and knowing that that very miracle would be the final straw to provoke the religious leader's conspiracy to kill him, he said of Lazarus' death in verse 4 of chapter 11, it is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. He knew the consequence that was going to come, that was going to ultimately lead to the cross. 
And I mentioned earlier that in chapter 12, as Jesus' soul was troubled, he spoke of the hour having come for he and his Father to be glorified in his sufferings. And actually in chapter 17, at the beginning of his prayer to the Father, as he's about to go to the cross, that's what's uppermost in his heart and his mind, is the glory of the Father being displayed in what's going to take place at the cross. And so, in verses 31 and 32 of chapter 13, Jesus is seeing and he's trusting that God's life-giving glory will indeed be displayed in his sufferings. And he's pointing us, as he pointed his original disciples, to see and to trust God's life-giving glory as well. And the point for us, beloved is that if we trust this glorious God who displayed such life-giving glory by giving up His own Son at the cross, then we can also trust Him with whatever troubling circumstances He's currently ordained for us. And so again, think about the disciples in the upper room. Even in the troubles that Jesus had led them into, He's pointing them and us to see and trust the life-giving glory of God at the cross. The Apostle Paul said it this way in Romans chapter 8, verses 31 and 32. He says, What then shall we say to these things, we who believe on Christ? He says, If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You see, Paul understood that if God can be trusted in the greatest of work he did in giving up his son on the cross, meeting our greatest need of salvation and eternal life, And we can trust Him to graciously give us what we need in every trial and trouble that He leads us into. And what this means practically, friends, is that in whatever troubles you're facing right now, fix the gaze of your heart and your mind on the fullness of God's life-giving glory seen at the cross. Open God's Word. Maybe go to the Gospel of John. Maybe go to the book of Romans or or go anywhere in God's Word and ask God, plead for God to open your eyes to see and to trust and to feed upon His life-giving glory at the cross. Seek and trust God to give you the grace and the wisdom and the strength that you need to endure the trials He's ordained and to endure them joyfully and patiently and faithfully. And even ask a believing friend to pray for and with you in this fashion because it's His life-giving glory displayed at the cross that brings life and perspective to everything else. Well, back to John chapter 13 The need for Jesus' disciples to see and to trust God's life-giving glory at the cross, it would be essential because of the bomb that Jesus drops in verse 33. And this is a bomb for them. And so he says in verse 33, little children, a term of endearment, a term of love. He says, yet a little while I am with you. 
You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Again, this was a bomb. This was a bomb. And these words must have been like the bottom of all hope dropping out for them. Think about it. This man whom they had given up everything to follow for almost three years. This man whom they had trusted and who had taught them and who had fed them and who had led them and who had protected them and provided for them and rebuked them. This man that they had watched perform miracle after miracle and take on the religious and, 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 and political powers of the day. This man is now telling them he's leaving and he's going somewhere that they can't come in the midst of a context which is hostile against him and against them. How troubling this was for them, and we know it was troubling by their responses, beginning with Peter, as we're going to see in a few moments in verse 36. And yet how good and loving of Jesus to point them, before he drops this bomb in verse 33, to point them to see and to trust God's life-giving glory to be displayed in his soon-to-happen sufferings. And so Jesus' disciples and we need to ever look beyond our troubles to God's life-giving glory and to trust him, and to trust him. Well, Jesus goes on to speak, and in verses 34 and 35, we see the second way he troubles us to do us good. Not only to point us to see and trust God's life-giving glory, but second of all, by commanding you and I to walk in his mission of love. By commanding you and I to walk in his mission of love. And again, this is what we see very clearly in verses 34 and 35. So he says in verse 34, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And beloved, what a good and a gracious and needed commandment this is from Jesus. We who have been loved by Jesus and the Father through the Spirit, we're to overflow with His holy love to one another. And certainly this begins by loving our Christian brothers and sisters in a local church, just like these original 11 disciples were to love one another, to put up with one another's weaknesses and idiosyncrasies and, and sin and, and all kinds of things that could divide us. We're to rather work against that to love one another in the local church. But even as it's exemplified and empowered by Jesus, this holy love is an overflowing, ever-expanding love that seeks to draw others in. And so it means loving others beyond our local church, other Christians, and it certainly means loving those who aren't Christians, including those who are aggressive enemies of Christ. Think about how Jesus even showed love to Judas in washing his feet, even though he knew Judas would betray him. 
And you see, beloved, this good commandment from Jesus is to orient and to align our entire lives. This is the mission that Jesus sends us to walk in. To grow in knowing His love in fullest measure. You see how this is related to God's life-giving glory displayed at the cross. And as we grow in that, to also overflow with His love to others. Now again, just remember the context of this command from Jesus. His disciples are troubled. They are fearful. They are anxious. We know that they're selfish and slow to understand and believe. We know that they're fighting among themselves from things we're told in the other Gospels about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. And in the midst of fear and trouble and selfishness and all that's swirling around, there's a tendency to just turn inward and isolated. It's in that very context Jesus says, no, no. I want you to see and to trust God's life-giving glory that's going to be displayed in my sufferings. And I want you to hear this new old commandment to love one another. He's making clear the mission of love that they're being sent on and that we're being sent on to walk in. Now, I call this a new old command because that's just what it is. It's a new old commandment. And it's old in the sense that God had commanded in the old covenant that his people were to love one another. Even as we heard read earlier from Leviticus chapter 19. But when Jesus says this is a new commandment, what is it that makes it new? Well, it's new in the new covenant with Jesus because in a new way, he shows the nature of God's sacrificial love in laying down His own life on the cross. And really, if you think about it, what Jesus had just done in humbly washing His disciples' feet, of course, that was a powerful demonstration of His love, but it was a demonstration that anticipated the greatest display of His love that He would humbly show on the cross. And so the Lord Jesus is the new demonstration. He's the new example of what it means to wash each other's feet, of what it means to love one another. And for Jesus' original disciples, these men had personally and physically known Jesus' life and love while he had been physically with them. But now he's telling them that they'll continue to know his life and his love in his absence as they see and trust the life-giving glory of God and as they love one another. And so it is for us, friends. So it is for us. God designs uh, to show and to advance his love in Jesus among us through his spirit and according to his word. And as verse 35 says and makes so clear, uh, this love displays to the world that we belong to Christ. And so you see a local church filled and overflowing with God's holy love in Christ. With people who are sacrificially caring for each other both spiritually and materially. The local church in this sense is the miracle. It's the miracle of the new covenant. Because it gives expression to the supernatural work of God in His love among us in Christ 
for which there's no human explanation. And I rejoice in the context of this local church. None of us do it perfectly, but there are countless evidences of God's holy love at work among us that bears testimony to the world around us. So, beloved, this is our calling. This is our mission. This is what God has sent us to do, to walk in this mission of love just like our Lord Jesus. We're to faithfully display God's holy love and we're faithfully to declare His holy word so that others would come to share fully in His eternal life. And that's why we're to keep sacrificially loving and helping one another to those ends. So I hope you see that uh, what we're finding here is that through Jesus and what he's doing, he's troubling his disciples. He's led them into this trouble they're experiencing, but he's doing so to do them good. He's doing them good and us good by first pointing them and us to see and trust God's life-giving glory. Also, by commanding them and us uh, to walk in his mission of love. But now as we come to verses 36 to 38, with Peter, we see a third way that Jesus does his disciples and us good. And I want to just give you fair warning, this may be painful. This may be painful. Because here it is. Jesus troubles you and I to do us good by exposing and cleansing our sin. He troubles us to do us good by exposing and cleansing the depth of our sin. And this is the point of what's going on with Peter in verses 36 to 38. So we read, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Now it's evident that Peter had sin deep sin that he was not aware of. Deep sin that only Jesus could expose and cleanse. And just to get a little more specific, Peter's sin we could describe as proud self-sufficiency. Proud self-sufficiency. And we can certainly have the same tendency too, can't we? You see, Peter's proud self-sufficiency is present in the context of all the troubling fear that he and the other disciples were feeling. And Peter probably is giving voice to what all of them were thinking when he blurts out, Lord, where are you going? He's responded to what Jesus had said earlier in verse 33. And he was undone. He was undone at the thought of Jesus leaving and going somewhere that he couldn't be found. And Jesus tells Peter, of course, that he'll eventually follow him to where he'll be. But Peter does not want to wait. And so with proud self-sufficiency, 
He again blurts out and probably in a way that is boasting and bragging over the other disciples, I will lay down my life for you. And then Jesus, fully in command, the good, loving shepherd, all-knowing, says, no, Peter, no. The rooster won't crow. Meaning, mourning is not going to arrive before you deny me three times. And as we learn in chapter 18 of John's Gospel, that's exactly what happens. Again, not once, not twice, but three times. Peter denies he has anything to do with Jesus. And among other things, how Peter displays our need to have a healthy distrust and suspicion of ourselves. Our need to understand our sinful tendencies and vulnerabilities toward proud self-sufficiency. Peter shows the impotency of good intentions. He shows the inadequacy of passionate resolve. He shows the uselessness of human willpower and determination. He sadly exemplifies what is said in Proverbs 16 verse 18, that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And you see, this is Peter's proud self-sufficiency. He's relying and he's acting on his own interpretation of what's happening along with his own opinion of what should happen. It's pride. Proud self-sufficiency. And how should Peter have responded, you might ask? Well, with humility and with dependency on God in prayer. You may know and remember of what Peter does in the Garden of Gethsemane in a short time when he and a few other disciples follow Jesus there as Jesus goes to pray as the other Gospels tell us. What happens with Peter? He's falling asleep when he should be humbly seeking God for the needed strength and help that he needs for what is about to happen. And so Peter needed, like we often need, Jesus to do him good by exposing and cleansing his sin, by exposing and cleansing his proud self-sufficiency. Well, you and I can imagine how hard and painful and troubling Jesus' words must have been for Peter to hear. It seems that he's stunned into silence Because it's interesting, we hear nothing more from him through the rest of the mission discourse through the end of chapter 16. Nothing more from Peter. He's stunned in silence, it would seem. But make note of the fact that Jesus, the good shepherd, loves Peter. And he's doing Peter good. Though it will be some time before this good comes to full fruition. Ultimately, Jesus leads Peter into the hardest thing that Peter could ever imagine, the failure of denying Jesus. But he does that, Jesus does, to bring him into the best thing that Peter could ever experience, namely peace 
forgiveness, and restoration with Jesus. And see, Jesus was doing Peter good by exposing and cleansing his proud self-sufficiency. And Peter would come to understand this afterward. Afterward. Maybe you remember what Jesus told Peter earlier in chapter 13 when, G- when Peter resisted Jesus washing his feet. You remember what Jesus said to Peter there in verse 7? He said, what I'm doing now, you do not understand, Peter, but afterward you will understand. You don't get it now because you don't see and understand the sin that yet needs to be cleansed from your life. But yes, 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 Peter would come to understand it after his tragic failure just how desperately and how deeply he needed Jesus to wash his feet. He needed Jesus and only Jesus to cleanse his sin, his proud self-sufficiency. And so in verses 36 to 38, Peter did not understand the greatness of his sin and the greatness of his need for Christ's forgiveness, cleansing, and restoration. But in a few hours, when he would hear the rooster crow after his failure, that noise would would be like pulling the bell to awaken his conscience, awakening him to his sin and his guilt. And in time, after Jesus rose from the dead, Jesus would speak peace and forgiveness to him and to the other disciples. We see that in John 20, verse 19 and following. And then sometime after that, Jesus would meet up with Peter and ask him some hard and penetrating questions, but restore him to ministry. And so guess who it is in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit comes after Jesus has ascended. Guess who it is that God chooses to use in the first proclamation of the gospel after the Holy Spirit's come. It's Peter. It's Peter. But he had to come to terms with his sin. And he had to know the cleansing of his sin by the work of Jesus. You see, the depth of sin must be exposed before the delight of Christ And His grace can be experienced and enjoyed. And so Jesus is doing Peter good. He's doing him good by exposing and ultimately cleansing his sin. Now just quickly, by the way, is this to say that all trouble that we experience is the result of our sin? And the answer is no. Not at all. There are many other factors and many things that are beyond our control in the troubles and the trials we experience. But we should recognize how vulnerable and prone we are to sin, particularly in the midst of troubles, how prone we are to proud self-sufficiency. And we should also know that if we do have sin, that we're not aware of, Jesus will indeed trouble us to do us good by exposing and cleansing our sin. Well, in verses 31 to 38, as we draw this to a close, you might ask the question, well, how did the disciples end up in this troubling and terrifying and totally disorienting experience that they're in here at the end of chapter 13? 
And the answer is simple. They followed Jesus. They followed Jesus. He led them into this trouble in order to do them good. To point them to see and trust God's life-giving glory in His own sufferings. To do them good by commanding them to walk in His mission of love. And to do them good by exposing and cleansing the depth of their sin. And so in love, Jesus leads you and He leads me often into trouble to do us good in the very same ways. And you see, this is the supernatural work that Christ does in His people because we all need, we all need to be supernaturally transformed by Him. This is the work of our good, loving shepherd. In other words, we need our eyes supernaturally open to see and trust God's life-giving glory because we're naturally blind to it. We're naturally prone to look at the things we can physically see. But we need God's work to open our eyes to see Jesus, the crucified, risen, and exalted glory of God. And we need His help to supernaturally sweep us, as it were, into His mission of love. Why? Because naturally, what are we? (laughs) We're selfish and we're self-serving. But Jesus is the holy love of God incarnate and He seeks to sweep us into this mission. And we need to have our proud sin, our proud self-sufficiency supernaturally exposed because we are naturally self-deceived. We're naturally self-sufficient. And we need the exposing, forgiving, cleansing, restoring work of Jesus in our lives. Well, what's a practical and tangible way that we should respond to all of this? We've heard a lot this morning. Even when we're troubled with fears, anxieties, and suffering. Well, let me have Peter himself. It's actually God through Peter. You understand that. But in Peter's first letter, in chapter 5, let me have him have the final word even in the context of his experiential understanding of these things. Listen to what Peter says in chapter 5 of 1 Peter. I'll pick it up in the middle of verse 5. He says, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you. Casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist Him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. That's a good word for us to close with. Let me lead us in prayer. Oh, our gracious God and Father, Lord Jesus Christ and Holy Spirit, how we thank you for the fullness and the sufficiency of your mighty work of redemption. It's beyond our ability to fathom that you would even choose to redeem any of us. We know it's not because of anything in us that should solicit your care, but it's because of your sovereign, gracious perfect love. 
And so for all whom you've brought to faith, we thank you. And we thank you that you stay with us, that you don't let us go any more than you let Peter or those other disciples go who were your own. You will deal with us in honesty and truth and in righteousness. But your aim is to cleanse and to restore and to purify us. To help us to see more and more of your life-giving glory and all that Jesus you accomplished at the cross. And to be all the more aligned with your mission for us to walk in your love. And to be all the more humble before you. And seeking you in prayer, humbling ourselves under your mighty hand and trusting that we can cast every care that we have on you because you care for us. So Father, please help these things to become more and more realities in our lives. We thank you for many evidences of how it is so. We pray that you would continue to work to bind up your purposes in every single one of us for your glory, for our joy, and for the blessing of others through us in the hope of the gospel. And so we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus, amen and amen.